Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation, a Stranger Things podcast. I'm Robin. I'm Jenna. And we're discussing Chapter 8, Papa. So I will say first off that it's really strange to be recording so soon after Chapter 7. In spite of the, the close the, the close recording, it feels... I can feel that muscle memory of the time gap. Like, it still feels like it's been a while since I got to see this episode. And I don't know if that will ever go away. <laughs> but yeah, without any any further ado, let's let's get right into it. So the episode opens almost exactly where we left. Like we cut back, we open with Elle standing there watching the gate close, her nine-year-old self, and then Brenner coming in, finding her. So we get the end of what was the beginning of chapter one, except this time we see her pass out. It struck me as like under any other sort of show's circumstance, I would say that this almost feels like a time gap decision. Like this was a thing that they would have potentially done because they they knew there was going to be a time, a break in the time of re- there was going to be a break in release of episodes, except that this is signature Stranger Things. Like they did this with chapter six and seven. So I like that that's baked into the show's sort of signature style already because it helped it not feel that way to me but we get this kind of fake out after that watching vh1 get his one tattoo we've gone back into nancy's vision i remember being surprised when brenner turned to her and said her and said her name i think the time gap probably helped that little bit of surprise for sure like we're not necessarily watching it immediately. Like it doesn't feel like it's in her vision. It stylistically feels just like, yep, this is just happening. And once he says her name, we see her in her trance, and we get we get the we get the this is music scene exchange, whatever you want to call it. Steve says you need to hurry. <laughs> yeah, no shit. We Blondie Beatles, Bowie music. This is music. This is music. Come on. I mean, that was pretty good. I, I love that that became one of the like standout moments of the season because it's so fleeting. It's not a particularly long moment. I mean, it. I guess it feels mm-hmm. long in a way because you're like, get, get her out of there. <laughs> it's a break in the tension in a very tense uh, yes. section. But it's it's it doesn't break the tension in a way that like snaps you completely out of it, which is really good. Exactly. It builds the tension, if anything, I think. Yeah, but it, and yet it does so with. I said a few episodes ago that the way that they use humor in the sort of face off between Jason and Erica was a really great use of humor. I would I would kind of echo that same sentiment here. Like this is this mm-hmm. is a hilarious moment, and it's baked into something that is really really dire. Yep, they nailed it. And yet, like, but it doesn't override the seriousness of the moment, yet it allows us a moment to kind of breathe almost. I, the acting in the, the when they're rooting through the tapes and all that, it's almost overacting, but yes. it's, it matches the tension. So it ends up being perfect. I just, the way he screams that this is music. Well, even, <laughs> I even, mean, that's great. Yeah, I mean, even Robin going like, we need music. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Nancy ends up being snapped out of it kind of on her own, right? Yeah. When we're in the vision, um, I remember saying in our reactions how much I liked how they mirrored the the shot from season three, which I remember when we talked about that, the whole chase in the hospital, mm-hmm. we both really appreciated how well, so horror style those sequences were shot. Yes. And I loved this as a callback to that. Like just, I mean, it's, it's not like it's a difficult shot to replicate. It's a low angle centered 
medium shot, but because it's something that was so specific to Nancy, I just liked it a lot. I still do. Yeah, but me too. We, yeah, he 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 gets her anyway. In fact, when she when she goes when she does get through the doors, in in the you know the mindscape that she's in of the hospital. Sorry, not the not a hospital, the lab. She. <laughs> And she ends up right back in the same room. That actually reminded me a lot of when Elle was kind of looping back to the Rainbow Room in Chapter 5. And I don't know if that was intentional, but it the sort of echo of that made me think of also kind of what Heidi said at the end of last episode regarding how Vecna is <laughs> monologuing to both Elle and Nancy in the past and in the present. And so I wondered if this was sort of like a carryover of that of that sort of duality. I don't know, but it, it was a really good moment, though, when yeah. she comes through the doors. And um, I was looking at the color grading this whole episode, the very strong blues and oranges. And I thought it was funny that even in her, you know, kind of vision that they were using that same color grading it's it's very strong in most of the scenes with Elle in the lab, but also in Russia in a lot of scenes and mm-hmm. um, and also in Nevada. Some it's very like I don't know why they didn't want to change the color grading for this, but um, I really liked the way she was haloed by orange light when she came into the room. That light on the wall was behind her and the ambient blue glow of the room was in front. But then as soon as it like cuts to black and then she wakes up in the chair, it's the opposite. She's the orange lights in her face and then the ambient blue light is behind her. And it was a really cool visual color choice to really make you realize, even before you realize she's strapped to a chair, that something's changed, something is off. 100%. Yeah, that's when he says, I, I want you to tell Eleven what you see here. And he shows her the future of Hawkins. I didn't necessarily catch how different this was from everything else. What what felt unique was when she wakes up on her own and that sense of like, wait a minute, they she's, you know, and you don't even fully feel the, the full weight of that until the follow-up scene to this, which is a few scenes from now, when she's telling all of them and they're kind of doing their debrief. So I was just caught up in the... The drama of it all, I think I was even kind of in the same place I think Steve ultimately starts from, which is, well, he's just trying to scare you. It's just still more of the same fear mongering that that's that's what he does. So but I like that you're caught that if that was their intention, like you're caught up in the moment. And then when she wakes up, that that's the first moment of like real surprise. It still feels like a like jarring in a good way, even now. Yeah, definitely. I was a little annoyed during that scene. I remember the first time watching it because she's screaming like no, but I couldn't I couldn't make out anything that was on the screen during those those visions or whatever. That's true. They were very quick and so stylized and they didn't it didn't quite look like anything we had seen before, you know? Like you could tell it kind of looked like the upside down, but that doesn't mean like to me anything in the upside down isn't going to make Nancy so distraught. And then later she starts talking about how I saw my family. I saw Hawkins, our Hawkins or whatever. And I, I just remember thinking, I didn't feel like I had seen any of those things in the vision, but on rewatch, it was interesting to see all those shots and be like, Oh, well that's what happens later yeah. <laughs> at the end of the season. Like, okay, I get it. Yeah. And well, and that's a really good point that they do omit showing specific visuals and 
because yeah, I noticed this time that not only do they do you not see the you don't see her family. She also mentions the monster with the gaping mouth, and we're jumping ahead a little bit. But when she said that, I was like, we didn't see that, and also <laughs> that something that I know there's been a lot of discussion about, like kind of within the fandom theorizing from the theorizing perspective, is how when you had the earthquakes in the upside down there was that ro- there was the roaring and there's been some question as to what is creating that sound and so then Nancy said this in this episode and I went okay so maybe it's this it's whatever this creature is cuz she knows what the mind flare looks like she knows what the meat flare looks like so if it was if it was that she'd have said that she'd have called it the demogorgon she you know she knows what all the all the beasties are so if it's none of those things then it creates this question of what have we still not seen by the end of this season? So that's clearly a question they want us to be asking, but they're not they're not spending an overabundance of time on it because it's not necessarily the focus of this of the narrative just quite yet. But yeah, it's a heck of a cold open um because we come out of the we go into the title sequence and then come out of it and we're back in Russia. The Demogorgon is still loose. And we get kind of a, a short one where Murray is trying to get the one soldier to talk to the guard on the radio, but he's refusing, obviously, because he knows Murray won't actually shoot him by now. And meanwhile, Antonov tries to work on the other uh, the other guard for a way out of the prison. Yuri tries to get a word in, still gagged, and Antonov is just like telling him to shut it. I love the petulant little way that Yuri grunts. And, it, and this made me want to take, take a moment to shout out... Uh, Nicola Jericho as Yuri because we've talked a lot about how annoying Yuri and obnoxious he is but kind of like something Heidi said way back in season one like it's a compliment to him as the actor oh yeah about how how grating he is (laughs) just incredible yeah and I haven't mentioned that yet but like because especially in these last few episodes like he hasn't really had a chance to say much because he's been all he's been able to do is just kind of shout and like you know (laughs) Yeah, it's the body language. The body language alone is really good. You know, Pedro Pascal and the Mandalorian still like, it's still acting. It's still great. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. We get that a little bit here. And I like how it's, (laughs) we have like kind of the, the imperativeness of their situation. And yet, I mean, then we also have this, the, the scene between Joyce and Hopper where she's patching him up. I, yeah, this was this is the little exchange that they have, you know, that they set up so well last episode. You know, I had said that this was they were setting up for this exchange and how we get the hop saying that he doesn't necessarily feel like he has any purpose other than, you know, what is his purpose? And well, his purpose is to destroy this thing. There's this emphasis on like what value does he have and how here we're getting we have the line about how is Elle? She, you know, she misses her dad. But at the same time, we're not fully done with this arc yet. I don't think until they, he and Elle are reunited at the end of, of, of the season. And honestly, united with all of them. Because, including, like, Mike, you know. Because he has the line about when she mentions that they had the funeral. And he says, well, did anybody show? And it's a joke. But I think on some level, he kind of means that. And given the fact that her whole thing is you're the hero of Hawkins, it's still putting emphasis on the sacrifice that he made. The value of him was only appreciated once he was gone. And so, again, to follow up with what Heidi and I were talking about last time, this feels like we're only actually halfway there. And all of that is a compliment, by the way. Like, I like the way this is structured. I like that they don't just resolve it immediately. 
Yeah, definitely. I do like that they begin to go down this road, too. It's not just like we're going to ignore how shitty Hopper was all last season. He owns up to... I mean, even in season one, though, going all the way back, he had those issues. I don't know if insecurity is the right word, but he had issues with you know self-loathing because um, of what happened with his family beforehand. And I, I like that about him. I like that lore. I like the arc in season one for him. Season three just, it didn't feel like a natural continuation of that self-hatred. It felt, I don't know, it felt really weird. And then season four, though, I'm glad that they're at least acknowledging that he was really shitty (laughs) and that he has things to make up for and that you can't just, you know, redemption by death, your way out of being a shitty person. At least I hope that they continue down that path even into season five. Yeah, I, I like him being self-deprecating here. It's a good start. Doesn't make his actions from before excusable, but maybe we can start down that road to forgiveness. Yeah, it's that's a really good point because we were mostly last time talking about like all of his like trauma from like his war experience and the mm. you know and all of all of the stuff that gets revealed about how much worse Sarah's death was in with this new context of like oh he he feels like he killed his daughter because of what happened to him when he was in the war so but i like that that's another like really interesting layer to put on top of all of this like there's also like yeah his kind of terrible shitty behavior from from the previous year yeah no that's definitely how i took it especially because he was so shitty to joyce particularly and she's the one who he's talking to right there so he, I think, is trying to kind of let her know, yeah, I was kind of shitty. Yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. I like that. I like that as like, and it like as being part of this also, that it's kind of all of it. That's great. And how, yeah, like it's, it like adds to the motivation to go, to get out of there. Right. This, this development of like him wanting to take action, be, a, be the, be a leader. To live. Yes. Yeah. Of course. This moment between Joyce and Hop is interrupted when turns out the Demogorgon can climb can climb and uh, climbs up the wall and gets onto their level. Th- this was a moment where I, I found myself going, I've seen this before more than once. Like I knew they ended up in the tunnel, but I had a hard time like in this moment going, how do we get from there to there? So I was very surprised when it was like, oh, this is the moment where they end up going into the other room and they see the demodogon strapped down right and then they find the water tanks with the cages and then the tank with the all the swirling dust i was surprised like i i remembered this moment happening a lot later oh like i i almost think i associated this with chapter nine which doesn't really make sense because by the time they get back into the prison, there's a whole different thing happening but i think this was the reason for that is because i kind of look at this moment and I'm not saying this is actually true but my memory of it my experience of it was this is the farthest we get in terms of getting and getting an answer as to what's happening in Russia as far as how right. is all of this tied to the upside down yeah but the truth is is it th- we don't really get anything and I remember that in this in this sequence I, I said it in our reactions and I stand by it the idea that Murray asks the question what the hell are they doing and then they and then they don't tell us. The great fucking question, Murray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, well, don't ask the question then, because seriously, what what is all of this? 
part of the reason that I find this so frustrating is because they had my attention. I was very, yes. my, my curiosity <laughs> was so piqued. This could be one of the more interesting things we see in the show, period. But if it's not supposed to matter, if it's just supposed to be like, oh, well, the Ru they're Russians and they do, you know, um, shady shit. Right. Then, I don't know, maybe just have Murray say some throwaway line about how Russians do shady shit or whatever. I don't know. And then that, uh, that at least is some answer. Right. And, you know, if we never get anything else after that, then at least there is something, you know. Yeah. But as it stands, we still don't know. Well, and it because it felt like, oh, we're finally going to find out what the connection is to Hawkins. Yeah. And I was like, they're going to they're going to keep going through this room. And granted, they show us the the dust creature thing. But yeah, but that is like and the fact that they use this to later justify whatever decisions they make, I think, in, in episode nine. Right. Yeah. Because, oh, well, this proved that it's linked. But that, that was one of those things I was so frustrated about. I think I said this in our reactions too. Like, what? No, that doesn't prove shit. That doesn't absolutely nothing proves anything about that except for the Russians were interested in this stuff. There's no connection to Hawkins. I, I, I still don't understand. Even now, it's it's kind of a th it's the kind of thing where like okay, and we'll obviously talk more about this when we get to chapter nine. But the idea of of how, and actually it comes up in the scene with Nancy as well. And I'm, I, I, I was sure you were going to mention this if I didn't, which was when Nancy eventually says, whatever's happening in Lenore, it's connected to this. I'm sure of it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. How, what, like, why, like, how do you know that? That did strike me yet again, this, this watch through when she said that I was like, how, how do you, how know, do you that? know? You don't know shit. Stop it. Well, and it, It's only the fact that in, and the reason I'm, I, I'm comparing those things is because it's sort of like, why do they have to have this like absolute assurance? Because the fact is, and because right. actually something that I will say that the 11 plot line actually kind of gets right, which is weird because normally it's, it's, that's the, <laughs> that's the arc that, that kind of botches, botches stuff. Yeah. But in this case, the 11, the characters around 11, there is this, you get a very, and, and I will, I'll kind of tip my hand right now that this 11 stuff in this episode aged a lot better than I thought it would. I liked this episode a lot better than I did initially. And so the idea of like there being the kind of the empire strikes back of it all, the fact that it's like, I have to go and help them. You're not ready. Okay. But what is my alternative? I can't just sit here and not do anything. So I kind of like that it's they kind of put those two perspectives against each other. And I kind of wish that some of that energy had been more present in both the Hawkins arc and the Russia arc in these specific instances. Because if because, I mean, Nancy even eventually says, but they're not here. They're they're fine. Based on what we've seen we can maybe go with this. And like, you know, in, right. in the case of Russia, it's like it doesn't actually lead us any closer to the idea of how. So it's not, again, it's not the what, it's the how. And it's like we still don't have any information. Like even Murray's question of what the hell are they doing? It is a great question, but it's the wrong question. It's how how are they doing this? And again, why? The kind of conclusion that I'm coming to is that I just have to I have to let it go this road doesn't lead anywhere now I could be wrong we'll see we'll see and what happens kind of disappointing considering oh, they yeah. went to all that effort to oh, yeah. shoot in Europe and um yeah. yeah that's that's really that's really a, okay that's a choice 
I mean, because the, on the other hand, like it does also beg the question, like, well, what is a satisfying answer to the to these questions of of how and why? What would have been an answer to this that would have been satisfying? But I agree with you that it's very disappointing that there isn't really one. I guess the long and short of this whole entire mess is that I'm annoyed that this is the direction that they went in and that they they didn't pursue this and that they went there in the first place and didn't have a plan to keep pursuing it. Basically, that's it. Because I think the only reason that any of this is here is so that they can have the coordinated multi-tier attack at the end of the season. And like, okay. (laughs) Sure. But yeah, Antonov finds the escape tunnel. And I did did really like the follow-up of... I give it a hundred to one odds. That was cute. I liked that. Good callback. And down they go. So from there, though, we go back to 11 and it's her waking up in the present, having gone into cardiac arrest again. This poor kid. She remembers her birth (laughs) in the present. And that is what allows her to tap back into her powers again. What do you what are your thoughts on this whole birth memory thing? Here's what happens when you do things like create something that could be a really interesting situation and don't fucking follow through on it, like in Russia. (laughs) This whole thing with Elle getting her powers back anyway, as I've said before, I hate the way they've done this. I hate the entire arc. I hate that she keeps being controlled, manipulated, and even abused by these men, and that we have to keep seeing her being so distraught. And that we have to keep seeing her mother in childbirth so distraught. It's just, it's annoying, man. I'm, I'm, they did not, this was another choice that they made. I'm, I'm really not convinced that it means anything. So something that I posited in, in our last episode was the idea that they wanted something for her to be able to have as a memory, as like a core memory that she could use to tap into her powers that would have been applicable both before Vecna and after Vecna, like in the present and the past. And it's something that helps her to see Brenner for who he really is. That's an interesting way to look at it. Because she uses that against him. Mm -hmm. You hurt mama. That is in reference to what she finds out from season two. So I think they wanted a link. I kind of touched on it a little bit in, in chapter seven, but my issue here is that it's like the thing that gives her motivation, what makes her feel that she's, cause the, the th- it's a through line. They were, I think they were aiming for a through line. And I think what they were aiming for was this idea that she really truly finally believes that she's loved and that that is the thing that allows her intrinsically who she is. Something I do think that they they almost fully achieve it in this episode is this idea of like her finally letting go of this idea that she's that she's a monster. They come back to it in the, in chapter nine, but in this episode independently, I I like that. But I think that would have been made so much stronger if what allowed her to finally get her powers back is remembering just the sheer realization she didn't kill those kids. Like, that is not part of who she is. And I, I get that that's part of what her remembering her mother saying, I love you, Jane, I love you. But I feel like it's too restrictive of her at a certain time. It's not Hopper. It's not Mike. It's not Will. It's not Joyce. None of that was enough. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's like to be somebody who doesn't have their, their parent from when they're born 
I, I don't know if the, this is something that feels very authentic for, for that lived experience, but given how powerful those things have been in the past, it's like, I think the key would have been, it's all of it. And maybe that's what they're trying to say here, but it it felt like it, it was an opportunity to, to have her determine that based on her own experience, not based on something that somebody said. She needs to define herself by her own actions and not yes. by the way that other people think of her, even though we we are all about the power of friendship and well, the power yes. of love and all that. But it, you, there's also a great power in self-actualization. And yeah. that's something that I really wanted for her too, was mm-hmm. her to come into her own powers by grounding herself in her own, you know, who am I kind of thing and answering those questions for herself. And she was so um, terrified to look at that. She was so frightened mm-hmm. of, of, of what she believed about herself and you know as Heidi mentioned like this is something she's been wrestling with intuitively inherently since season one this is the moment where she could have been like I didn't do that I can maybe start to let that go I mean not not that like you know something else that Heidi's talked about is like healing's a journey like even when we talked about running up that hill it's like it doesn't fix everything after that but this was the moment where it's like she can maybe start to heal and yes. in some ways, I like where she goes from here, but at the same time, I just, I don't like that it's like, this is the thing that, I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. And I even watched it twice because I was like, does that real, does that, do they really flash back to it? Yeah, they do. And it, it would have been, I think, just so much more powerful if she had just literally woken up, taken that oxygen mask off of her face and just walked up and did it. Yeah, I love that. I've, you know, we've talked a lot this season about how, well, what would it have been like if Brenner hadn't been there? And I mean, I can see that like a big plot issue is the fact that like Brenner obstructs her ability to leave in this episode. But I still think there would have been a way around that. Like if, you know, Sullivan's men just attack before she can make her escape, like that would have made that feel a lot more dire, honestly. I still agree, though, with what Heidi also said last time about how again, that's fine. And maybe this is the beginning of her tapping into her power without her anger, you know, that this, and I'm actually, that's, that's kind of a new thought. I'm having that right now. And I'm one, I want to see how that tracks as we move into the final episode next time, because Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this tying in with the monologue that Mike has, where he can, you know, professes his love for her, if this is sort of maybe the turn of her starting to tap into love and, and, joy as opposed to anger as a source for her power i mean there might be listeners right now going obviously but (laughs) about time you got there but i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and choose to believe that because that makes it just in the moment right now that makes me not dislike this quite so much i mean i still i stand by what i said before her remembering her own birth is ridiculous it's absurd (laughs) like it it really is like (laughs) i mean but yeah, from there we return to the Californian crew. Um, haven't seen them in quite a while. They pass the Surfer Boy Pizza billboard. Um, Jonathan looking very tired, but not tired enough to to miss the scene between Mike and Will in the back of the van. I really liked this on rewatch. I did. I did too. I actually do yeah. like this scene a lot. I, it makes me sad, but like it's supposed to. I think. <laughs> That's the point. Right. You're not supposed to feel giddy when you right. see Will break down in tears <laughs> quietly. Well, and saying what he's what he's saying is just absolutely heart 
heartbreaking. But I did think it was funny. Like, I tried to really think about, you know, there's so much emphasis on Will in this scene, rightly so. But I, I, I tried to really think about Mike. And I did think it was funny that he's worrying about being, you know, just the one rando who Elle happened to stumble upon in the woods. And I'm like, Dustin and Lucas were also there. And, and Elle didn't fall in love with them. They didn't mm-hmm. fall in love with her. She fell for you because for you. of your qualities. Yeah, I know. Plus, we forget these characters are supposed to be 14 or so. So young, right? Yeah. It is go- it's going to be so natural for them to have all this self-doubt and insecurities about every little tiny thing. Yeah. Um, you know, teenagers are a weird mix of insecurity and arrogance. And <laughs> I think this really shows through. <laughs> yes. I think this really shows through in this particular scene because yeah. Mike, he feels so confident telling Will that his painting looks so good. And, you know, like, um, but he's... He's so down on himself in that same scene. I thought it was really interesting to think about where he was coming from in terms of those insecurities. And even if it doesn't make sense to the audience or, you know, to anybody else who would be watching him, like, I get that he would be feeling that way. Sure, that's fine. Um, And that he's voicing those insecurities to Will, I think, says something about their love, love, trust there, too. Mm -hmm. I like that he is able to step out of this worry I mean, we've seen it. We've seen him do it a couple times in this season already of being able to kind of put aside his fear surrounding L and be able to really take in the painting, even though there's so much emphasis on Mike and Will's relationship, you know, from both sides. I like that this painting isn't just the two of them. Like, I like that it is their party. It is Dustin and Lucas also that they are also there. I think that's really important. Like it's a, it's almost a throwaway blink and you'll miss a detail, but it's, it's important that they're there when he says, Elle doesn't feel like a mistake around you. If that is double entendre for himself, that simply doesn't work based on what they, what words were said between them last he year. Says, when you're different, sometimes you feel like a mistake. Those exact words to me, definitely speak to Mike about both him and and Elle, Elle. for sure yeah yeah like it's yeah. definitely not just one or the other yeah now I will say that again it does track with season two Mike it just doesn't work with season three Mike I I am glad that this is where we've ended up if we're going with this characterization of Mike honestly the truth is I prefer that because I do like this exchange like even though I'm on record also as saying Mike seriously how do you not not so much how do you not like hear Will crying, but how are you not picking up on the fact that he is clearly tearing up? He's his voice is is shaking, like he's upset. Like it's so I I do kind of I don't want to say that I don't stand by that, but on the other hand, I can also maybe see that like in this situation. No, I was I was gonna say like well how how do you respond to that? But it's like I don't know. I feel like Mike, if Mike is all of these things that Will is saying he is. He would have... He would pick up on it. Yeah. He would pick up on what Will's getting at. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's supposed to be the heart of the group. Like, maybe in season one, he seemed like he was that guy, but they really didn't keep up his characterization throughout the entire series like that. I don't... I, uh, I don't know that I would even say that that rings true for me, even all the way back to season one. Like, and that's not to say, like, well, Mike's not loving. I think he actually is a very loving character. To me, the heart of that group is has always been Dustin. Dustin, now that you say that, I guess I can see Mike 
not really being the heart of the group, maybe the leader. He's the leader. But, yes, exactly. But that's that doesn't have to be the same thing as being the heart of the group. You know, the heart of the yeah, the heart of the group. He has Will's heart. I think that might be what they're going okay. for. You have my heart, and he doesn't know how else to say it. And this is the closest that he gets to being able to tell Mike that. This scene does resonate very strongly. And and I mean that in a really good way. Like all of the writing that they do for Will's side of this speech. I mean, just the fact that we're sitting here like picking it apart right. in, in, yeah, in terms of like, what does he mean? And like, actually, that's yeah. all that all, to, at least to me, speaks from the the strength of the writing of Will's speech here. I love and it doesn't feel like a speech. I mean, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. In the scene, though, like in the greater context of the series though that's the problem yes yes and it is both it is both mm -hmm. and schnapp's performance is incredible yeah it's just heart-wrenching but yeah ultimately i for me the scene in the van is ultimately a net positive agree and we go back to 11 after that and we get a uh, we get brenner finally explaining what happened in the past to present day l so talking of this rewriting of season one's history sort of you know depending on how much they actually were were had in mind all along you know we have the podcast as as a record of the fact that i even questioned this back in season one what was brenner actually trying to do and how i said i really liked i liked the simplicity of it the Brenner was not trying to, I mean, he, I thought he was doing exactly what he claims to have been doing when he talks to Al later, which was just trying to spy on the Soviets. And I mean, he says that I don't, I don't think any of us buy that for a second, but I just, I don't dislike changing the context for us as the audience, like finding out that he was actually kind of looking for another dimension that he was looking for Henry. That doesn't like bother me. Exactly. But I find that I feel a bit of a loss of that initial simplicity. He's not looking for another dimension. He's just some guy who's trying to do weird spy shit because you didn't need that to make what was happening in that time and space really horrible. That was to me what was so great about it, especially because then you introduce these supernatural elements and it makes it worse. So I just kind of miss that. I'm a little sad to lose that. But yeah. I don't like hate this change. I I I, I want to make sure that I'm not like going, this is stupid. They shouldn't have done it. It's it's not that. It's it's just I kind of I kind of miss that simplicity, that's all. I'm with you. I think both this in tandem with the idea that like no 11 was always this super powered like all the way from the beginning, which isn't entirely true. I I think what that trips for me is the sense of it changes kind of the the flow of of the narrative in that it didn't like grow slowly it basically was like it was peaks and valleys all along like it no it was always big it was always really complicated it was always like otherworldly and and all this other stuff as opposed to like we started in the simplistic place and we've grown since then and it's not like that isn't true but i think that was also the thing that like i liked I think about the way the show has been structured until season four and then season four kind of went, ah, 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 actually it's always been this, this gigantic. And again, that's not like inherently a bad thing, but you can feel, you can feel the retconning in the air. A little, little bit. I, I still think it's somewhere in the middle between 
they knew everything and they made everything up. I, I think it's like a bit of both, but I also just, I, I just miss that feeling of it started small and it's grown. I found that to be one of the things that kind of made it feel unique that it was so small scale. Like actually Justin talked about that in our season four, hopes, fears, expectations. Like he said, I hope they don't make the world too big. Like that they don't, you know, he, he and Heather both spoke to that about how like they kind of liked the small scale conspiracy theory aspect of it. Spy thriller vibe that season one had the gr- And I've talked a lot about, I liked the groundedness of season one and it, the idea that it kind of takes that, some of that groundedness away, like from jump I mean, season one is always going to feel the way it feels, but it it will change kind of the chemistry of season one now. And that's, I'm just going to, I'm kind of going to miss that more stripped down, small scale vibe. Yeah, I agree. Which is probably one reason why they're like, oh, we're just going to be in Hawkins in season five. And of course, this is also when Owens discloses to Elle what's going on in Hawkins. And she naturally freaks out and immediately goes to go check in. With the Hawkins group. Not that she can. Yeah. That was cool. And and that kind of was a as a contrast, like it that was such a kind of stripped down moment of like back to basics. And I liked that a lot. Like just turning on the water and then just sitting on the bed and going into that mm-hmm. space. It was like, that's great. And the visuals were so cool. I love the phone on the wall just hanging yeah. there completely by itself. Yes. Like, it's such a simple thing, but it was so cool. Yeah. And we haven't, it's funny because something you and I talked about in season three was like, some of this began to feel redundant. Like we've seen these, in, but it was mm-hmm. like having not had it for like all of this season was really cool to mm-hmm. kind of come back yeah. to something that has been such a staple of the visual language of this show was, was great. Yes. And the editing is so good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just... This whole show, for the most part, the editing is like standout. Yeah. And sh- I mean, even shooting it, you have to shoot it as if you're in the, the tra- in your if you're in Max's trailer and as if you're 11 watching it. There's a lot of we've talked about transitions between scenes before and how they seem seamless sometimes. And that's just that's because of the way they shoot. That's because of the way they planned it. You can tell some of these uh Edits and cinematography, you can tell some of it is just so intentional. And that's what really elevates it. Mm -hmm. And I like the location of Max's trailer. I like being in this in this place. It's different. I like that they're having to kind of continue to find new places to to go. And there's they're all still dirty. I know (laughs) they're like they none of them have showered or changed. And then what do they do next? Go out in public. (laughs) Well, it it's funny because I both like find it like irritating. I'm like, really? We couldn't have had like shown like that Steve has at least like changed, like has an actual like he's cleaning his gaping wounds. Oh like we God. couldn't have that. But at the same time, I actually really like the detail that they haven't they haven't ten- tended to anything. They haven't changed or showered or whatever, because it actually is a storytelling choice because it shows like, no, what happened was more important. Like they got across the street, they sat down and she just started talking, like maybe took her a while to calm down, but it's like, everyone is just focused on her and focused on the problem. So I actually like the detail. It's, it's a nice detail. Nancy's speech is sort of met with silence for a while. It's sort of like, it's in that it's the same sort of vibe as when Max is like, so I'm the next victim. Like, so this sucks. Um, any ideas? Like, no one knows. They're like, what do we do about this? And I, so I liked that we're kind of getting that energy again before they do the whole, they figure out the like four chimes, four kills, four gates. 
And uh, I, rem- I was reminded of chapter four based on some of the stuff you said back then as well when you were like, how do you know? You're making this up. <laughs> a lot of times in fantastical or speculative fiction of some kind, whenever there's something like this, it usually has an influence of some kind. Like you're either playing on some sort of magic system or historical or cultural thing, but this just continues to feel really arbitrary. Yeah. I wonder if this is part of the D&D lore of Vecna, and I don't know enough about Vecna as a D&D figure to be able to speak to that, and maybe not, but and even if it is, it's not conveyed enough. Yeah, and even if it is, like, who's going to know that? Right. This is not lowest common denominator information that just any audience member is going to have, right. which might be cool if you put something in there just for the D&D people, the hardcore D&D people, but if it's something like a major enough plot point that it dictates what our characters plan to do next then maybe you should have your audience understand why the where the fuck they're coming from so if maybe they use like a folktale or something that like everybody kind of knows or whatever or if or if they found something else that victor or henry yeah victor creel told them or or something I, i mean no they're just it's totally arbitrary and it feels like it sound because they figure it out how it because it, in terms of it all being there, it's like, yeah, it's all there. But why? They keep calling California, but it's just a busy signal. But they deduce, well, mostly Dustin deduces, that Vecna and L are similar. And so his weaknesses are like hers, that he's vulnerable when he's in his trance. So they can sneak into the upside down and kill him like stabbing Dracula in his coffin. I mean, I remember coming out of this conversation the first time through and going, this is not going to work. I don't know how this can possibly work. (laughs) But I also remember really liking and still like how there, I do feel like there's enough of like kickback. Like there is a lot of the Nancy's so super determined, like we weren't prepared, you know, we should be prepared this time. And Steve, but Steve being like, we barely got out of there and you only survived because he wanted you to. That, that really says a lot, but even then Dustin going the like, all right, so let's not fight fair this time. And then Max offering herself as, you know, as bait. Yeah, like, I don't feel like they get to the conclusion. I mean, apart from the detail of what what Vecna's plan is, I I like the way that the, the conversation is constructed. I, it makes yeah. sense that they end up where they do. Yes, I agree. Definitely. For all the arbitrary things that they do come up with for what's going on, their plan then becomes logical. And they do have a lot of checks and balances within the group. But it is then funny to me that they choose to go out in public to a weapons store full of people, you know, in the middle of the day. Uh, There's some cool things that come out of it. But, you know, maybe Max's mom and Eddie's uncle have a few guns between them and then they go find some at Nancy's or whatever. Like, they could have done something to just be like, and now we're in the field working on our weapons or whatever. And... They might have been able to trim some of it to like whittle it down a bit. So I don't I don't disagree with you, but I think part of the reason it doesn't seem as bloated to me is because of the way it is spaced out through the episode. But yeah, Eleven watches the conversation wide eyed and then we shift to Russia, back to Russia and the group emerging from the snow. They plow through the checkpoint um, where Murray drives through it, through the gate nonstop. They finally remove the ga- Yuri's gag and try to get him to help. Yeah, I 
not a whole lot of commentary on this sequence. Although I do like that Antonov gets to have his gets to have his moment here, threatening Yuri. Yep. That was nice. There was there was a lot of like, this is the first time they've really like had a chance to like fully engage with one another, and it's long yes. overdue. Yeah, so the way they kind of sarcastically refer to each other as comrade. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that was really good. I like that uh, re- between them. Well, and especially because it's like, oh, yeah, Yuri, like, super backstabbed him. Like, mm-hmm. it's because of Yuri that he got thrown in prison in the first place. Yep. Yep. From that, We bounce back to Hawkins after that, and that's when Eddie tells the group about the war zone that they, you know, and they debate about it, but decide it's worth it. I like, though, that there is that detail about, like, well, is it safe for us to go there? Because, you know, and it's it's the idea of, like, it's far enough outside of Hawkins that we shouldn't run into any anybody. And I like that inclusion because it's like, yeah, going anywhere is is a risk. <laughs> Again, Eddie asks about if, if Max has a mask or something, but he's still in the same outfit. He's wearing a Hellfire Club shirt. Including, like, his rings. I was like... At least to put them in your pockets. Like, those are so identifiable. And also, like, you, come on, guys. The art of stealth is basically <laughs> blending in by looking yeah. like you belong, not sneaking around like assholes. Like, come on. I mean, I know they're kids. Maybe they wouldn't right. think of that. But still, like, still. putting that mask on does not help you at all. It's just goofy. They do steal the RV, and it is ridiculous, but I like it anyway. Yep. <laughs> you know, they do. They steal the RV. We bounce back to 11. Where she demands to Owens that they need to keep her friends safe, and this is wh- this is where we get the beginnings of this argument back and forth between the three of them. This is you know when Owens says this is her choice, and he starts like advocating for Eleven. I'm like, this to me, this was the moment to acknowledge what he did to her face, like something like along the lines of we denied her the choice when she got here. You know, now we need we need to make that right. Like something along those lines. This was the moment. He for flat it. out lied to her to mm-hmm. get her there in the first place. Back to Hawkins. This is this is the one of the reasons that I'm glad we have the RV because this is where we get the scene between Steve and Nancy to James Taylor's "Fire and Rain," which just I mean just appreciation for that song. Oh my word, it's such a good song. Mm-hmm. I love it. It's mm. and. I've wondered about the significance of it. I know in our reactions I touched on on the use of it here, and I'm assuming it's just for the main line of the song, you know, the I always thought I'd see you again. I assume that's why it's here, but it it did I kind of like went not down a completely went down a rabbit hole, but it I kind of started pondering like if the song itself has any cuz I noticed we have this and we have the CCR song up around the bend when they steal the RV, both of which feel not quite in the same sort of vein of most of like the eighties songs that we get most of the time. But considering that this song, the song deals with a friend's death, addiction and depression. And then looking back on one's successes and failures, I was like, huh? So that would, that's a question I would have like for the, the music supervisor mm-hmm. or for the Duffers. Like what was yeah. that? Was it for more, you know, is there any deeper significance apart from the one line of mm-hmm. the song? Obviously, we're going to we're going to spend a minute with this because that's what we do here. Steve telling her about his dreams of the big family. I think they resonate with her, with Nancy, because I think it is different from what she wants of her life. But I think it's still a dream and it's something that he's striving for. She 
may admire that just in its in its own right. You know, that idea of like she's got these career ambitions or whatnot, but the idea of like he's like, I want to have a big family. I also think it explains a lot about a lot of his motivation, like you and I talked about in the Fierce Hopes Expectations episode, about like what does he want? And it was kind of nice to kind of get an answer. <laughs> yeah. You can grow a lot in your teenage years at any point. But it's just so weird to hear him say that he wants a big family. I don't know. I don't know why, but that always struck me as a little bit odd. I kind of, I don't know that it's something that fully tracks for the whole series, but I, I like it because, and I actually feel like it almost works better if it's not something that he's always wanted. Yeah. I buy it though, in spite of that, because if he doesn't, if he's not super close with with his parents and he doesn't have any siblings, I could see that being something that he would want to be different about his own life. Um, well, you know, that might be, I, I kind of wish they would have put it in that terms, in those terms mm, then, mm-hmm. you know, Steve oh, yeah. really never talks about mm-hmm. his, he, I mean, him coming from a privileged family was such a plot point mm-hmm. in season one. And he's just not really that guy. And anymore and I would love to hear a little bit more about why that is he was gonna go to college and then didn't I don't quite remember what he says but like does he not want to keep trying and his dad what his dad cut him off and if that's the case that's kind of a big deal when you've grown up privileged your whole life like but there's nothing about that from him like we don't even know where he's living right now is he still living at home or is he like like did he get like an apartment somewhere like, we don't know. And I think that kind of speaks actually to something that Heidi said in season three about how, like, Steve ends up falling into this weird kind of, like, limbo of character prioritization because he both is, like, he's obviously a, a fan favorite. And yet, within the context of the plot, his life, his, like, internal life, apart from how it relates to, like, the romantic characters or like to the kids like to these other people his own inner life doesn't actually matter to like the overarching plot most of the time so it so like even the fact that this scene exists is kind of amazing because this is one of the most inner things we've heard about his about his life i mean and the only reason that this is here is because it's fueling the romance the rekindling of the romance so it makes sense that we wouldn't have heard about this, but at the same time, I think it also falls. That's why I said it falls into like this weird limbo because yeah. at the, everything you just said, and also like the audience loves him. We would love to get more <laughs> a, a, about him. Like, obviously this is a great scene and Carrie rocks the hell out of it. This is the first time that he has said kind of openly that like that he wants a, the kind of life of a, of meaningful relationships. The idea of him saying like, I want a relationship that's more than just sex. Like this kind of merges that idea of like, I have to say that idea, but I have to say it in this like way that kind of is like got this filter of machismo over top of it. So the fact that he's able to admit that with admit all of this without, I mean, he still ultimately doesn't say I really, I want to be in a serious committed relationship. That's what I want. I kind of feel like that's what he's saying to her here. You're right. I mean, even the joke about, like, I can't imagine where I've gotten all the practice with the six kids. Like, it's almost like he's saying, this has had an influence on, on me. And then he's saying it in a way that feels like he's being really vulnerable with her. You know, love triangle aside, I don't mind moments like this, even if this doesn't go anywhere, because I like the idea of them meeting where they're now at and asking the question and just looking at it and addressing it. I 
I like that. Absolutely. Sometimes just this is endgame. Having the conversations at all can be endgame. Yeah. Whether or not it results in friendship, relationship, whatever. Just having these conversations sometimes is what it's all about. I mean, the scene kind of comes to a natural end, but I found that I was waiting for him to say, what about you? Right. <laughs> like, what, what do you want? Like, you know, what are, what does your future look like or whatever? It felt like that's a very natural moment for him to yeah. throw it to her. Cause, and I also wonder if they deliberately didn't do that because anything she says at that point could have gone any number of ways that would have been too telling mm. one way or the other. But I still think that the question not being there feels a little bit weird. Yeah. And we get the conversation in the back of the RV with Lucas and Max and he tries to come up with, you know, the way to avoid the situation. But Max is like, I'm not going to do that to somebody else. Run to the light, hide in the light. Ugh. <laughs> I really liked this exchange between them, particularly. Like there are some exchanges, like I said before, that did not really work for me, but I love this one. A little bit about the like happiest memory and the way he asks, was I there? And the, that's presumptuous of you. Like, and the, oh just God. the way they play yes. too. It's not overly sappy, but yes. it's also not overly like, you know, sarcastic or trying to play it cool either. It's a really good mix. It's a really good middle. It is. It's, and they don't tell us what the memory is, which specific memory it is. It might have been something in the show it might have been something in the couple years that you know the year that they were right. together like we don't and we don't need to know and it's just so yep. so beautifully done yeah yeah it's great back in russia we the group arrives at yuri's warehouse with his helicopter i think uh i had to shout out the editing again in this scene though because it matches the actual tone of the conversation those cuts yeah. Those um those still shots that are so like different from each other and the quick cuts it just matches the silly tone it really really well done. I love the exchange between Hop and Murray like through through the the vehicle like and he's like I try I did warn you Jim like like I liked that a lot <laughs> especially because we're we're like kind of right there with Murray in that moment like because Hop is like what? like is shocked and it's like we're all like yeah. I don't know why you're surprised. <laughs> like we've, he's been like this since we met him. So yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then, yeah, Joyce mentions Owens. And what's funny also about this is that this scene is then followed by them getting to the war zone store and how you have this super intense, like we're in the Soviet union, possibly trapped there. Probably don't have too much of a head start. We also just risked a, a phone call that the KGB either heard or will hear when we hear back from them. This is super, super high stakes, super dangerous. Followed by, I mean, very season three energy between the, between this edit, these two, these two scenes, because we get a very like Murica vibe when we cut to the war zone with the music and everything here. What a choice everything is in this scene. Yes. Well, and I guess they went this route because they needed to caricaturize it. So I'm not mad that they went for the more, satire almost it was still really uncomfortable oh it though. was oh no it was i'm not gonna i won't disagree with I that i think it's i think it's supposed to be i don't think you know we're yeah. supposed to be like cool great awesome but um but yeah no i love the way they did it's so over the top though yeah yeah it's it's the best way they possibly could have done it that whole entire scene like it I was laughing to myself the first time watching it just because like all those jocks were showing up like what <sighs> What? Of course. Okay. They're all there at the same time. Sure. What are the odds? You know, 
I don't know. Like I most I mostly bought that because I felt like they have established that they're like on the hunt and whatnot. But it is it is sort of convenience. But that they're there at the exact same time no, of I, day. Yeah, even I, you know? I know, I know. But uh, I having said that, I do like the exchange between Jason and Nancy. I oh, I, I, love I like it. that they put that in there. And I actually like um, Robin seeing what's her name across the store as well. Like, I I like that little exchange. I mean, the whole thing is definitely contrived, but I kind of like that we at least had some extra moment with Vicky in there, you know, between the beginning and the end of the season. There's something, even if it's in this whole scene that I think didn't even need to happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, You know, at least we got a few good things out of it. And I did like that, however contrived it felt. Well, and also how we get Steve being like, go for it. Mm-hmm. And even when she when she kind of like, run, you know, not runs away, but sort of makes a hasty exit, even him being like, you know, kind of calling after her, like, I'm like, oh, I don't know, just that their friendship is such is so great. Yes. I love it. Yes, it's important. But yeah, to circle back to, to Nancy versus Jason, while Erica spots the rest of the team, like, I love I love that exchange. I love too that he he does give her good advice about the shotgun and that she will eventually implement it. Like she we we hate Jason, but she's not going to like not take his advice. Character-wise, it's such an interesting balance of like she understands the threat that Jason actually does pose. And at the same time, it's like Nancy has fought actual monsters. The, the way that they balance the two is really, really impressive to me. Jason is such a, such a visible figure in their community that I also think like they're trying to maybe not fully lay low, but not draw a lot of attention to themselves. She's talking, she's now in the company of one of the most visible people in their community. It adds this level of alertness, I guess, if not full on danger. And then that's why I think like the impact of seeing the other rest of the team in that space like has the like, oh, no, energy. Oh, yeah. The tension is like, oh, yeah, it shoots up. California crew. Meanwhile, uh, they arrive at the coordinates, but don't see anything. And again, like Argyle is so ridiculous, but I love him. (laughs) I know, like. The way that he just happens to stumble upon the tracks, like, oh my god, okay, fine, it's Argyle, I will allow it. He's wandering around shouting, Nina? Like, it's so absurd. <laughs> but I, but yeah, like the fact that, and I even like Will. Was oh, he still high? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> I was just about to say that. With Eleven, uh, Owens calls Stinson, uh, but gets cut off. I always forget, because we just saw... Sullivan and his right. forces arriving. So I I always think that this is the military arriving. Yeah, me too. Yeah, but it's actually that same icky guard from chapter five. And Elle takes what she thinks is a last look at Nina, but gets locked in with Brenner. And then they have it out. I love that she uses all his bullshit against him and that, you know, she gives it to him. And she tells him, if you try and stop me, I will kill you. I will not allow you to keep me prisoner here. Yes. And this is just another, I'm just so annoyed that he manages to get her immobile and helpless again. This trope of the young, powerful girl being rendered helpless. Yep. And I'm, I'm so over it. I've been over it and I'm still over it. And it's, this is just another thing to piss me off about it. Mm-hmm. 
I hated the conversation on the first watch as well. I, I like I just remember feeling like we're going in such circles. It feels so mm-hmm. so redundant. Like we like especially because yeah. it's like a you this you that no you this you that it, would, yeah. it felt it felt so redundant but i <laughs> but i have to say no you no you it felt like that oh my god you're right but that said it's a lot less of that than my memory rendered it she has I, I feel the, the value of this exchange in terms of her arc as as far as like she has to understand this to be able to, you know, part of what I said in the about the beginning, like she has to fully get to this point of comprehension to be able to fully leave this place behind, regardless of whether or not Brenner survives. You know, at this point, I don't think she has like active intention to kill him unless he tries to, you know, prevent her, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But like she has to be done with this. Mm-hmm. And the idea of needing to say these things aloud to him also makes sense to me like it's for her it's not really for him not really mm-hmm. you know and and it is true he is the monster henry is too yes i don't want to lose sight of that they're both monsters but as she points out brenner kept him there with her and the yeah. other numbers and that was something i had not remembered her saying right yeah me either that really stood out on this watch i was like wow that's a damn good point one thing though that I I really dislike is that she credits Henry for the for the Papa doesn't always tell the truth, like he's been lying to you since you arrived, like you knew that before you remembered it. Mm-hmm. You know I don't I think they had this idea that Elle was gonna try to not bond with one but find some common ground with him and take him down that way, and Papa is a common ground for them Mm -hmm. the way that they were treated by him and the way they felt about him um so i think that that's all that really was i'm not sure that they were completely successful with that but um that's where i think this was coming from probably in hawkins they're preparing for battle the we get the bunch of duos we get nancy and max we get dustin and eddie lucas and erica and steven robin you know and then yeah this is when we get nancy sawing off the shotgun Pays off so well later. It's great. I love Nancy. <laughs> Dustin and Eddie. Where he's like, don't ever change. When we came in to watch volume two, I actually did go ahead and ask and got the spoiler. I was like, who dies? So I did know that Eddie wasn't going to make it out of season four. But this was the first moment that I was like, if I didn't know... That absolutely would have given it away. And you even said in our reactions episode about how we get a lot of our, like, in case I die <laughs> exchanges. Yeah. It really felt like maybe it was down to Steve and Eddie. Mm-hmm. There is something about the use of the phrase promise me that doesn't, that feels, I don't know. There's almost something, like, too meta about it. Like, it feels inorganic somehow. You know, he'd, like, shove Dustin again and then said that exact same phrase, like, when he went to pick the shield back up. You know, like, and he he says it almost more casually, like, man, don't ever change. Yeah, exactly. Something always felt like a little bit weird about it, but not like super weird to me. My the thing that bothered me about that scene is them driving the nails into the trash can lids. I just felt like, honestly, practically speaking, that was that's a terrible choice of weapon. 
that like that, that makes no sense. Like the, first of all, those nails are gonna fall out. You're weakening your shield, yeah. and like if you get stuff stuck to it, then it gets really heavy, and like yeah. it's gonna make it. You're gonna get arm fatigue from holding it up. Like that's just a, this like one of the stupidest weapon designs I've ever <laughs> seen. Like that's what really bothered me about that scene. <laughs> anyway. That said, all of that said, I do I do love probably one of my favorite things is the joke about the battle and then Dustin's like little laugh is amazing. Battle. <laughs> it's the little squeak of a laugh. Like yes. that was that's perfection. Yes. That's that's amazing. Yes. Lucas and Erica, love it, no notes. Yeah. Although I will say their spears were also pretty ridiculous oh. too. Like those things, those knives were barely attached. <laughs> I mean, and I don't know if that's kind of the intention. Like we're not we're supposed to think that this looks feeble because of what Right. It's so it's so thrown together and but like what well, they went to the store to get weapons and now they're making these absolutely ridiculous contraptions that are not gonna work. <laughs> well, the Molotov cocktails are at least smart. Well, yes, that makes sense. Yeah. And I do and the scene between Steve and Robin, like, it also feels a little meta, but in a way that I like the fact that they talk about like, well, what is the relevance of failed romances, you know, in our love lives right now? No, I do too. I actually really like the exchange between them. I also feel like that feels very similar to some of what like we've talked about on the podcast about like, well, like this is why it's important that people live because these little romances and these little like idiosyncratic parts about life is like exactly what make life worth living, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just those little pleasures in life. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of any of this, mm-hmm. you know. Eleven wakes up with the collar around her neck. Of course she does. He's still trying to justify himself to her. And this is happening just as Sullivan and his forces arrive. And we get the whole sequence of them invading and Brenner's forces facing off with them. Brenner and Eleven escaping and Owens and Sullivan coming face to face again. Like the way he says if you're wrong god are we gonna need her like that is an amazing line delivery yes oh he he does such a good job in that scene yeah him thinking quickly like i'll I'll put her in a coma and we can we can see what happens and like th- that desperation of like trying to keep her alive like that does a lot of a lot of work for me in yes. reestablishing my good yes. towards him. Yeah. And and it, it really telegraphs to the audience because we obviously were on Elle's side from the very beginning, you know? Right. And then his, you know, his desperate no <laughs> when yeah. he gives the order. Um mm-hmm. you son also of a very bitch. well yeah. done. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. The arrival of the California crew in the Surfer Boy Pizza van is absurd, but I kind of love it. Like, I, it definitely works on a certain level. Absolutely. But could we have done something else? Probably. I guess Maybe. this is fine. I kind of hate the whole entire sequence where Brenner's getting shot by a sniper in a helicopter. Like, I kind of hate that whole entire thing. Mm. Um, I hate the whole thing where they're shooting at L from a helicopter. I, I don't know why. Like, it's just, it's too much. They wanted L to bring down a helicopter. Yes, they did. They reversed like, That's what they that. wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. But it just, I don't know. It didn't work up until that moment for me. You make an excellent point. It's its very, like, not where I ever thought any of this would go. It's dissonant. I mean, our girl needed to let off some steam. Yeah, I'm happy for her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That is followed by all of these reunions 
And there's something awkward a little, like slightly awkward about her reunion with Mike. And I don't, I think that might be intentional because they still have some shit to work out. Mike's been trying to work shit out about them. Elle's been a little bit preoccupied. Busy, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and to the point where she's also like, she's been so embedded in, you know, the Hawkins lab yeah. life and experience in that world. And so to be pulled out of that, I mean, like, I do like the way yeah. she looks so, so genuine. I mean, of course, she'd be surprised mind to see fuck. them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. She, she would be surprised to see them either way. But the idea that she's like, whoa uh 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 so there's almost like that i have i need i'm having trouble like shifting gears here <laughs> so yeah definitely but the, i mean the reunion with will is beautiful i love that i love their reunion. yeah jonathan's like we have to leave it's important we leave and then we can spend this long period of time saying goodbye to papa yeah oh my god i'm so they're trying to make him into this much more important character than i feel like he has any right to be he is an important character in that he's driven so much of this grief for Elle, but he's dying slash dead now. So let's move the fuck on. And I feel like she's in a place to do that, to say goodbye. That's the entire point of this arc in this episode is to get him the fuck out of her life. I wanted her to like basically spit on him. Maybe not literally, but you know, like, fuck you. I actually like that it's such a cold reaction that she's because i think there's a because my worry was when he when she walks over and she kneels down next to him and he like puts his hand out and she like kind of leans it i was like oh we're not doing this are we yeah same i understand her instinct to do that though i don't like it for her but i get it and then even in his last moments there's no apology and he's just continuing to justify it. And he's like, I need you to understand. And I, I remember like noticing it on the rewatch, like that's, you know, Heidi said it about uh, Henry in the last episode, how the moment that Henry lost her was when he killed that on un that unarmed guard. And in this case, I think you watch him lose her when he starts justifying it. I just feel like he should have lost her so long ago though. I get that this is like a little different, that he's literally actually dying this time. Over it. Have I said it yet? I'm over it. <laughs> I'm over it. I like that she doesn't kick him. She doesn't spit on him. She just literally drops his hand and says goodbye. He doesn't even warrant her anger anymore. It's just, I'm done with you. I think that's what I wanted, except for it just took away too fucking long. That kind of sums up a lot of things this season. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> but I love the score. Mm -hmm. I love how Dixon and Stein are doing such great things with their original 11 theme through the season. Actually, with a lot of their themes this season, these themes that we knew from season one and they've brought them back or throughout the series, they've repurposed them for this season in really brilliant ways, especially since we've already heard a reworking of, of this theme. It's great. L tells the rest of the California crew, because she's now back with them, that they have to get back to Hawkins ASAP. And they're like, well, that's not really possible. And then that's when we shift into separate ways, the separate ways montage. Yeah, this that this musical transition is one of my favorite parts in the entire season. And I just I love the mix of separate ways that they do. Oh, it's so my it's only so complaint good. is that it needed to be longer. <laughs> and we needed so much more. I'm glad that they did the trailer mm -hmm, with that mm -hmm. mix. I mean, oh my God, that was so good. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I wanted more of it in the actual show. Just needed more. It was so, so good. 
there's something about the way this ends. It's so like we're building and building and then like Exactly. It's because the battle's about to happen and we're all hyped to kick some ass. Something that Steve and I talked about in chapter five, I believe, but I think I cut it out. And but I think it's really applicable in this moment. And I guess we're we're shifting into final thoughts at this point. This is kind of a really great example of like the kids are kind of on their own. We don't have Hopper. We don't have Joyce. Even like Jonathan and Argyle and Steve and Nancy and Eddie, they're still relatively young. Like some of them aren't minors anymore, but they're like they're not fully, fully grown adults. And none of them have like Hop's experience or, you know, whatever, whatever. I mean, they're all pretty experienced at this point. But I like the idea that they are a little bit on their own. And in spite of all of the Russia stuff being a little bit padded, a little bit circuitous like I, I wish they could have tightened some of those things over there but I like how them being absent puts the kids all of them in this situation that they kind of have to be they have to be the adults and that's just yeah. really interesting thematically and I wonder if um separate ways the, the sequence here kind of feels like it kind of leans into that a little bit. Yeah. That, that part of the reason that they're acting out of this desperation is because they don't really, again, like they all don't really have another choice. Yeah, definitely. I see that. Overall, I, I like this episode. I mean, it's so hype at the end, especially, and there's a lot of good moments. I think I said before in our reactions, something that bothered me was these character moments, right? Like we pair off and we have a bunch of conversations throughout this particular episode. And it felt like, oh, this is the buildup to, you know, whoever's going to die. Well, that's going to it's going to give us emotions because of these conversations or whatever. And it's just like, I'm still kind of annoyed that they didn't space these out a little bit better throughout the entire season. Now they threw them into episode eight, mm-hmm. a little bit to episode nine, too, I think. But like, but overall, I mean, this episode was still in that positive for all the annoyances. I agree. I briefly mentioned it earlier I liked this episode a lot more this go round. This was the reaction I had to chapter eight was what I was hoping for with chapter seven. I, I feel like a lot of the things that really hit me really hard on that first watch have softened a lot. One of the things I hit, I railed about in, in our reactions episode was how obviously so much of the stuff with L was the Empire Strikes Back. But I don't see that as quite so blatant as I did on the first watch. It's still absolutely there. And I think we'll definitely come back to that at the end of chapter nine but what i like in this episode independent of that is that i feel like it i i can see more of a subversion of that now because frank just frankly yoda and obi-wan do not trap luke on dagobah they don't stop him from leaving oh absolutely right you know the way that brenner does and also yoda and obi-wan are in agreement brenner and owens are not And that reminded me a lot of some of the stuff that like, you know, when Steve brought up the subversion of how you have Robert England and he doesn't actually play a bad guy, Mm -hmm. it felt a little bit like kind of in that same vein. And I actually appreciated that a lot. And that is a very different place than I found myself in our initial reactions. So that was a really big relief. Yeah. Her conversation with Brenner in the Nina room has also aged a lot better as I, as we discussed. Right. Yeah. You know, I actually feel like that demonstrates really well what I said, what we've been discussing about how like so much, you know, her anger comes from the way he's treated her and others. Like that is a perfect marriage of the anger and the empathy at once. And yeah, like I, I just feel like this episode is really strong and overall a big relief. Yeah, I agree. 
Well then, with that said, that will conclude our contemplation on Chapter 8, Papa. As always, thank you for listening, and you can join the conversation. We're on TikTok and Instagram, and you can send us an email. All the necessary links are in the show notes. If you're a fan of our pod, consider rating and reviewing us. Coffee and Contemplation is available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, we go our separate ways. Over and out. still i stand by what i said before her remembering her own birth is ridiculous it's absurd <laughs> like it, it really is like it's just so much ridiculous stuff I know, especially in her mind like i was just gonna be like okay fine whatever she remembers her own birth a little bit okay i'll just <laughs> a <whatever>. little bit <laughs> <laughs> well maybe not every little detail no, you know you're, <laughs> <laughs> you're not wrong <laughs>